Now there is in our day a great need for good medicine. Doubtless since the fall there has been such a need. We live in a fallen world with fallen bodies and that leads to illnesses of one kind or another. And we live in a world, and I thank God for the good medicine that is out there. I thank God for good doctors who are out there. I thank God for good surgeons who are excellent at what they do, internists that are excellent at what they do. I am so thankful to God for that. And yet at the same time, we do live in a day where the need for good medicine is compounded by the proliferation of bad medicine, hyper-vaccination, and depression. Concerning the latter, I saw uh, one article recently that stated that some 25% of adults between the ages of 18 and 29 say they're depressed, and that that was a stunning 12-point jump from 2017. And thanks be to God, the Bible has good medicine for the ailment of depression. And I know there are other interventions out there, but nonetheless, we live in a day, and that's just one demographic, that's just one group, and that seems to be ballooning, that seems to be skyrocketing the problem of depression. I think the COVID vaccine is an example of the former, the former what I had referred to. I do think that people weren't given, truly given, informed consent supposed to be given informed consent when you go and you get a medical intervention of one kind or another, especially something like that. And from my understanding, informed consent involves knowing legitimately, legitimately the risks. It involves knowing legitimately the benefits. And it involves legitimately knowing the alternatives. But a lot of people weren't presented with those details. They weren't told the risks. According to Pfizer, 20,000, specifically Uh, 20,761 out of the 42,086 adverse events were not followed at the time of their report to the FDA. So that means people who had uh, adverse events during this trial time, over 20,000 of them, were not followed. Following the data that was reported by Dr. Pierre Corey, 3.7% of all trial participants died within nine weeks of the completion of the trial. 3.7, and that doesn't include the plus 20,000 people that were never followed, who it was identified they had adverse events, but they were never actually followed. That's pretty risky. Wouldn't you like to know that? That there was 3.7% of people during the trial time who died within nine weeks. That's not even including other problems that would arise in this group that wasn't followed. Earlier this year, there was a study released from Michigan State University published in the Biomed Central Disease Central Infectious Diseases Journal, and it claimed that as many as 278,000 people in the United States died as a result of the COVID vaccines as of December 2021. Those like Dr. Ryan Cole and many others have sounded the alarm of the carcinogenic nature of the spike protein, as well as how the lipid nanoparticles found therein go throughout all the body. They break the blood-brain barrier. One Japanese professor at Tokyo University, he recently stated, asking the question, why such a sequence derived from cancer is present in Pfizer's vaccine? He went on to say, not me, he went on to say, these are such alarming problems, this is, goes on to say, this is outrageously malicious. I'm not telling you to believe what he's saying as though it's canon, I'm just saying that's a Tokyo uh, professor who's saying that. You, You do well to know that, you do well to understand these kind of things. 
or at least know about them. Now, this doesn't include, include all of the video footage of state health departments, and there are many examples. News networks, government agencies, doctors, and the CDC director all encouraging pregnant women and breastfeeding moms to take the COVID vaccines, despite the fact that the messenger RNA from the COVID vaccines would be found in the breast milk of mothers. And one of the things they have to watch with this kind of thing is that there'll be a certain study that's released, and you look at the, you look at the details of the study, and you say, well, that was for a short time, and that was for a particular demographic, and then all of a sudden there's a study comes out that contradicts that previous study. Such was the case with messenger mRNA being found in the breast milk of mothers. This showed that the COVID vaccine, and I know people would take issue with that. I understand. People would say this doesn't fit the definition of a traditional vaccine, and the definition had to be changed. This is actually gene therapy. It's not a traditional vaccine. I know, but for the sake of not getting caught up in that, I'm referring to it as what many people understand it to be. This showed that it didn't stay in the muscle where it was injected but it went through the body. Not to mention just more data that, that's out there. The U.S. fetal death rate, that's the stillbirth rate in the U.S., it jumped from 5.74 in 1,000. That was in 2020, by the way. 5.74 in 1,000. It jumped to 29.3 in 1,000 in 2021. Why is this important for you to know? Well, there's a bunch of reasons why it's important for you to know. One reason would be the medical industry is looking to unleash a number of other mRNA products for various ailments that, to use language from Dr. Ryan Cole, are dangerous or should be thought to be dangerous until proven otherwise. For two particular reasons, at least. Seeing that they use lipid nanoparticles that go throughout the body. It can be found, there's a whole bunch of studies that have been done. That spike protein doesn't stay in the arm, goes into breast milk, can be found in organs throughout the body, breaks the blood-brain barrier, and so on. And also what it does, and this is what Dr. Ryan Cole would argue, that it provides a gene sequence that turns a cell in your body into a toxin factory, which is dangerous. So I'm not a doctor, nor is this medical advice, but you just need to be aware that there are other sides to the story. There's another side to the coin. And I'll get into this a little bit more in a moment, but one of the things that I've marveled at when it comes to Christians is that we can look at the Bereans and say, the Bereans, they are more noble than the Thessalonians because that's what the Scripture says, clearly teaches that in Acts 17, verse 11, that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the Word of God with all readiness, but then they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what the Apostle Paul said was true. But yet, for so many Christians, when it comes to questioning the orthodoxy that is communicated by government authorities or by certain doctors, that is supposed to be taken as though it's canon. And if you question it, it's as though you're going down a route of cultism. Christians can speak authoritatively on science, right? The age of the earth, you speak authoritatively on that, don't you? And you're not a scientist? Christians speak authoritatively on the economy and economics because we know the principles that are set forth in the scripture. We can speak authoritatively on history and we're not historians. You have the capacity to analyze data. I'm not saying you're going to know everything. You're going to come to a perfect conclusion. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying the information is there. And we should follow the example of the physician Luke who carefully investigated things as he was preparing his gospel for uh, Theophilus. Then there's hypervaccination. Interestingly, just good for people to know. 
1986, for instance, the CDC recommended shot schedule was 12 shots that included 25 antigens. Did you know that in 2019, that's not even 2023, I don't know the latest, I know per the Children's Health Defense um, graph that they have provided, I know that in 2019 it went from 12 shots to 54 shots. It went from 25 antigens to 70 antigens. Now you may not be an immunologist, you may not know all the details of what an infant body can handle at a certain amount of time and the development of that body and the immune capacity, but don't you think it's worth investigating? Dr. McCullough, for instance, said, don't take my word for it, Dr. McCullough said the association between early childhood hyper-vaccination, and that's what he's talking about, hyper-vaccination, and the development of autism in previously normal children should be re-examined. He said that when he was a child, for instance, the rate of autism was 1 in 10,000. But today, it's 1 in 36. Now, he'd be the first person to say to you, I'm not saying it's just that. There's a whole bunch of other variables, right? There's environmental factors. There's toxins that can be found in the environment, maybe to a greater degree, or in the water, or in food, and so on. But to not even consider that, to me, seems irresponsible. And the Christians of all people who rejoice in truth should be those who say, and a multitude of counselors, there's safety. I want to hear one side. I want to hear the other side. I want to hear both sides of it. I want to know. I don't just want to bury my head in the sand and say, I never want to hear the opposing side because who am I? I can't know this. I can know about history. I can know about the Bible. I can know about economics. I can know about science when it, when it refers to things that are found in the scriptures and so on. But I can't even begin to understand these things. It's not a Christian perspective. You're a Christian. You love the truth. And I'm not saying we're going to come to perfect answers. I'm just saying, isn't it worthy of investigation? And the people that I would want investigating above all others would be those who are indwelt with the spirit of the living God who say, I love truth and I love my neighbor. And I don't have a horse in this race. I just want to see the data and then make an informed decision. And whatever your decision is, you're free to make your decision. But at least you're the type of person who says, I want to be aware that there is bad medicine out there. Just as a quick note, think of what this has led to, by the way. This has practical implications for a local church. You think about in the FLCCC recent webinar, they had a montage at the beginning of different news organizations and different like late night comedy hosts berating the unvaccinated and trying to drive a wedge in society and a wedge that was doubtless found in churches. You don't think something like that might not happen again? See, this has practical implications. It has implications for you. It has implications for your family. It has implications for our church. That's why you do well to know that there, there exists out there bad medicine. And thanks be to God, there also exists out there good medicine and excellent surgeons and doctors that are a tremendous blessing. By no means, it would be foolish to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It'd be foolish to paint with such a broad brush that you're throwing every kind of medical intervention, pharmaceutical or natural or whatever, under the bus. You don't do that. You don't paint with a broad brush. Christians are to be those who are measured and nuanced. So with that being said, I want us to understand that the Word of God has something to say about our health as well. It's not just me talking about the subject because I want to. It fits in the scriptures. It fits in the text because God himself has a lot to say about our health. 
And when we get to the text that we're going to be studying today, you're going to see that what God's word says about our health is also connected to our Christian duty, which is also connected to God's glory. There's a beautiful connection to be found there. As far as what God's word says about good medicine, and believe me, I'll keep making this point because I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not saying you throw every other medical intervention out with the bathwater. Not at all. I want to keep saying that because some people say, he's saying throw every other medical intervention out and just read the Bible. That's, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. And I'll keep saying I'm not saying that lest I be misunderstood and you be distracted. I don't want that to happen. There are great things that God has put in this world. There's great interventions that we have at our disposal that previous generations didn't. Thanks be to God for that. But the Bible has something to say about our health as well. Some examples of good medicine found in the Bible. Not being wise in your own eyes, fearing the Lord and departing from evil. Proverbs 3.7 is said to be health to our flesh and strength to our bones. Inclining our ears, that's Proverbs 3.7 and includes Proverbs 3.8 as well. Inclining our ears and eyes to God's wisdom. Keeping such wisdom in the midst of our heart is, according to Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 22, health to our flesh. God has given us the gift of prayer so that we, like David, when according to his will, we might be able to say, O Lord my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Psalm 30, verse 2. Let him who is suffering pray. To reference James chapter 5, verse 13. He's given us the prescription of going to the elders of the church, being anointed with oil, being prayed over, confessing sin, and by God's grace being healed. James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. And there are other things we could glean in other places in the scriptures. Although it profits little, especially in comparison to godliness, we are nonetheless told that bodily exercise does profit. So you can kind of glean a little something from that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. The Bible even warns of the danger of overeating. Look at Proverbs 25, verse 16. Isaiah 58, an amazing chapter that sets forth the benefits of fasting which medicine today is catching on to, right? You're hearing more about intermittent fasting, more and more people talking about how fasting, sometimes over a 24-hour to a 72-hour period, and obviously there are those who do supervised in a medical fast that go longer, put your body into a state of autophagy, self-eating, self-cleansing, and it's one of the ways they've found to rid your body of the spike protein. Interestingly, things that God has had in His Word for so long. While it is by no means a central focus of Scripture, the Bible has quite a bit to say about our physical well-being. That brings us to a quick reference I want to make here to what's often referred to as the mind and body connection. Christians do not need to go to New Age gurus to uncover this reality. You don't need to go there. Right? If you hear about a mind-body connection, you're like, oh no, you're venturing into the world of New Ageism. And you might very well be, depending on what you're looking into and where you're going. What I want to tell you is that the scripture very clearly sets forward a mind and body connection for us. One example of such would be Proverbs 14, verse 30. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Tremper Longman III points out, he makes the comment, as 14.30, speaking of Proverbs, 14.30 points out, one's whole being is affected by one's emotional state. 
And I just want to reference that briefly one more time. Proverbs 14.30, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. One of the things that you'll find so often in the scripture, which we should know intuitively as Christians, is that God's commands are good for us. You're not supposed to envy. Why? Because it's sin. But what else does it do? It brings about rottenness to the bones. Well, what do you mean by that? We'll just put it in a general sense and we'll unpack more of that language a little bit later on. It's bad for you. Well, why is envy bad for me? Well, it leads to discontentment. It can lead to frustration. It can lead to a lot of things. God's commands are good for you. I mean, there are plenty of other examples of that found in Scripture. We know that Jesus told us not to worry, right? Don't worry about tomorrow. Well, we're told in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24, that anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. And you'll see when we look at our text, Proverbs 17, 22, there are a lot of downstream negative effects to depression and not having a cheerful heart. So again, God's commands are good for you. Don't envy. It'll be rottenness to your bones. That's not the only reason why you shouldn't envy, but it's one of them. It's in God's word. Don't worry about tomorrow. Well, one of the reasons why you shouldn't is because anxiety in the heart of men causes depression. And as we're going to see in other texts of Scripture, that leads to bad things for your body. Pray. There are many reasons why you should pray. But one of the reasons why you should pray is because the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's just a quick little primer to say God's commands are good for us. They are good medicine. Now, after that, Introduction, we come again to our text, Proverbs 17, verse 22. Um, Our text reads like this, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Now let me tell you, along the way, as I'm teaching this and expounding this, you you might hear me say a different rendering of that verse. Because the kids have a video at home where this verse is sung, and it's sung in a different translation. So if you hear me say something different, it's because I have that song ringing in my ear, you might say. And you're getting kind of a mix then of the NASB translation and other translations possibly, at least one. All right, now, I want to keep doing this, right? What is this verse not saying? Proverbs 17.22. In light of that whole introduction, I nonetheless want to come back and say, Proverbs 17.22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. I want us to be clear about what this verse is not saying. Proverbs 17.22, in light of the Bible, is not saying that other means of help are to be neglected. For instance, when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he didn't tell Timothy... Timothy, just cheer up, and you'll get over your frequent stomach infirmities, your stomach infirmities and your frequent illnesses. No, rather, he told him to no longer drink water only, but to use a little wine for his stomach's sake and frequent infirmities. So Proverbs 17.22 is not saying, throw out all other means of assistance. It's not saying that. Proverbs 17.22 is also not saying that the only factor in one's physical well-being is cheerfulness. As if one could binge on Twinkies, gulp down high fructose corn syrup, be physically stagnant, but be in tip-top shape because of their cheerful disposition alone. It's not saying that. Proverbs 17.22 does not mean that all healthy people have met their quota of cheerfulness in their lives, and all sick people are sick because their cheerfulness is short of where it ought to be. 
That's not what's going on here. Right? That would be, be kind of doing the same thing that the Word of Faith movement does, right? Looking at a whole bunch of people and saying, the sick people are the sick people who have not enough faith. At least some within the movement have communicated such. You don't want to do that. It does not mean all healthy people have met their quota of cheerfulness in their lives and all sick people are sick because cheerfulness isn't where it ought to be. Proverbs 17.22 also does not mean that there isn't a time to weep. Ecclesiastes 3.4 There is a time to weep. Paul's instruction to the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. A cheerful heart is good medicine, or a joyful heart is good medicine. See, I did it. There it is right there. does not mean that there aren't going to be times where you weep. Jesus wept, and it wasn't sin. It was an outworking of holiness and compassion. Jesus is weeping. Well then, if those are some examples of what Proverbs 17.22 doesn't mean, what in fact does it mean? So again, let's go back to the text. Eyes on Proverbs 17.22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. I've told you this many times before. I'll, I'll say it again. Oftentimes, when you're trying to understand single verse Proverbs, this could apply to Proverbs that are beyond a single verse, but I'm sticking to single verses right now. When you're trying to understand single-verse Proverbs, it's often helpful to see how one line informs the other line. How does the second inform the first? How does the first inform the second? Well, in this case, we could see that the word heart in the first line, a joyful heart, is paralleled by the word spirit in the second line. They kind of run parallel. Here the words, to use language from Alan Ross, refer to the mind or the psyche. It's basically talking about what a person thinks in his heart. What he considers in his spirit. Now second, now this is what we clearly see here. That this speaks to how one's state of mind affects their body. A cheerful heart or a joyful heart is good medicine. Or as some render the language, causes good healing. So that means that when a person is joyful or merry or glad, or yes, even happy. And I know in our Christian circles, when we look at happiness, we tend to make a nuance there and say happiness, often understood as being dependent upon circumstances, where joy is the sphere of the Christian life, whereas we are not having uh, joy dependent upon circumstances. But nonetheless, I'm using those words right now to give us a picture of a merry heart, a glad heart, a happy heart, a joyful heart, somebody who's got a disposition that is glad and pleased and happy in a given moment. The scripture says very clearly here that there are, generally speaking, Remember, this is the Proverbs. Health producing results. It's good medicine. It brings about, it helps in, it aids the healing process in the body. My guess is a little parenthetical aside more than modern science has even begun to understand. Come back to that in a moment. Anathetically, a crushed spirit. So again, how does one line inform the other, right? A joyful heart is the opposite here of a crushed spirit. What's a crushed spirit? It's basically a depressed outlook. It's a dejected outlook. What does that do? It dries up the bones. And you might say, I don't know what that means, but I don't want it happening to me. I don't want dry bones. (laughs) Say, what does that mean, though? Remember the valley of dry bones? Ezekiel 37. Dry bones 
again, to uh, go off of Alan Ross, connotes unhealthiness and lifelessness. Dry bones are the opposite of healthy bones. Uh, or to use a Hebraism found in Proverbs 15.30, fat bones. That's the Hebraism that's found there. Good news, make the bones fat. So you're kind of just getting this picture of a healthy body, a vibrant body, a strong body. That's the general idea. A dried up body is weak and it's, it, it's losing life and so on. Whereas a healthy body is what's connoted in, say, Proverbs 15.30. So the picture of dried up bones, you might say, further encourages the pursuit of a cheerful heart. Is it the only reason why you should pursue a cheerful heart? No, I'm going to get to that. You have greater reasons than your own physical well-being to pursue a cheerful heart. I'll get to that in a moment. But nonetheless, if you do pursue a cheerful heart, and by God's grace you walk in cheerfulness, not only do you avoid the negative downstream effects of a depressed heart, remember it crushes the bones, it crushes the spirit, it has a negative effect on your body, dries up the bones, but you can be a recipient, by God's grace, of the positive downstream effects of a cheerful heart. Now, I'm not going to labor here, having kind of provided the medical data and some of the statistics in the beginning of the message. I won't overdo this, but I do want you to see how research has attested to what God's perfect word has stated. It should be no surprise that there is a significant amount of research that shows cheerfulness can profoundly affect one's physical condition. So you got modern research, modern science, some of which dates back. I have a study that I was referencing back to 1978. I'm sure there's examples that go way further than that as well. Show that cheerfulness can, A, boost the immune system. Cheerfulness can protect the heart for, by example, reducing blood pressure and heart rates. It can, C, reduce the risk of stroke. D, lessen frailty. E, reduce pain. F, lead to a healthier lifestyle. G, reduce the stress hormone cortisol, which when found in high levels can cause health problems for people and more. Now, there are a whole bunch of studies that could be referenced. Ones that you would have easy access to, right, if you just do a simple search, would be like those found on, say, Healthline. Healthline referenced uh, one study where there were 300 people who were given the common cold virus via nasal drops, and the least happy people... So I, th I think people were just, they didn't make the determinant, like, this guy, he's not happy. I think the people had to mark their own rates of happiness and how much joy or lack thereof they felt. But the people that were least happy, according to the study, were almost three times as likely to develop the common cold compared to their happier counterparts. There's one study that I referenced based, dates back to 1987, and that explored the persistence of the human immune system when participants reported positive moves, moods by having them ingest a pill that caused an immune response. Participants were asked to rate their mood across different days, and then their saliva was tested for antibodies in response to the pill. Those who rated themselves the happiest had a higher level of antibodies. That was a study by Stone et al. Uh, et al just means and others. Now, there's a whole bunch of those that are out there. A whole bunch of studies out there that are showing research in different areas, reducing heart disease by somewhere between 13 to 26%. And I'm not saying to look at those as canon. No. I'm saying look at this as canon. Proverbs 17.22 is the word of the living God who made you, who formed you in your mother's womb, 
who has revealed things to you like what's told in Proverbs 17.22. He doesn't want you to despise Proverbs 17.22. He wants you to know it. Rejoice in it. Be thankful to Him for it. That within your own body, when you obey Him, when you do your Christian duty, more about that in a minute, it's actually producing positive physiological effects for your body. That's amazing. Amazing. So the examples could go on. Uh, Proverbs 15.30 is one that says something similar. It says, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. This is Proverbs 15.30. And a good report makes bones healthy. Now, if we were diving into Proverbs 15.30, I would call your attention again to the parallelism. The light of the eyes and a good report are meant to inform your understanding of what's being said. The light of the eyes is probably the positive, happy, joyful look in the messenger who's communicating good news. The light of the eyes. He's got good news to tell you. You see that light of the eyes, then you hear the good news with your ears, and the scripture says it rejoices the heart, and it has physiological effects. It makes bones healthy. So we can see, according to Proverbs 17.22, we can see that there is a causal relationship between rejoicing in the heart and healthiness in the body. Now, there may be those who aren't interested in physical benefits that accompany cheerfulness. They say, look, the outer man is wasting away anyway. The ship is sinking. You're fighting a losing battle. The quantity of life is determined by God. And neither the quality of life nor my contribution to that quality is of any real significance to me. So they resign to sit in their sullenness until Christ takes them home. The problem with that is that cheerfulness is not just a health-producing disposition. It's a Christian duty. You don't have a choice. <laughs> God's like, this is good for you, and you better do it. <laughs> I'm your God. <laughs> I'm telling you that there are positive things associated with this physiologically for you, but I'm not telling you to do it just for that. You do it because I told you to. As we're going to see, a cheerful heart, yes, it has physiological effects, but it's the duty of a Christian, and it's connected to God being glorified in a Christian. Think of some of what Paul said. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always. Now, there are other examples I can give. We read Psalm 100 in the opening scripture. Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, come before His presence with singing. There's other references I can give, even in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, part of the reason, not the entirety of it, but part of the reason why God was going to judge Israel included the following. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. It was a warning that Israel knew as part of the Mosaic Covenant that if we're not thankful, if we're not glad for the abundance of everything that God has given us, God doesn't take that lightly. It's a serious sin in the sight of God. 
But think about the reasons you have for rejoicing. Again, now, going back to Philippians, right? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 3.1, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. So the sphere of the Christian's rejoicing is to be founded in who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and the promises that are yours in the new covenant. Do you understand the reasons that you have for rejoicing, Christian? Do you understand that your name is written in heaven? More about that a little bit later on. Right? Remember when the disciples came back and they told the Lord about the things that they heard and the things they saw? How the demons were subject to, their, to his name? They went from city to city and the kingdom of God was coming. And what did Jesus tell them? Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. But rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the fact that you are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can snatch you from His Father's hand. No one can snatch you from His hand. Rejoice in your security that no matter where you go or what you do, if you are in Christ Jesus, you can't be separated from Christ Jesus. You have a union that cannot be broken. You are in Christ. Think about all of your sins. All of your sins. All that could weigh you down. All that could occupy your mind. All that could occupy your conscience. All that could bring you down. All that you'd be ashamed about. All of these things. You are forgiven. It's not who you are. You're a new creation in Christ. You're not the collection of all your past, present, and future sins. You are in Christ Jesus. The very righteousness of the Son of God has been imputed to you. Rejoice, Christian. Rejoice. He will never leave you or forsake you. But what if I disappoint Him? He won't leave you. What if, I, what if I try to forsake him? Try, you can if you're a Christian. You can't. You can't outrun the reach of his grace. So many reasons to rejoice. The Holy Spirit is in you. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You grieve him, but he's nonetheless sealed you for the day of redemption. How amazing is that? What faithfulness. What faithfulness. How many reasons? Oh, the reasons to sing. There's so many. There's so many. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice that one day with your eyes you will see the Jesus Christ who you've heard about so often. Rejoice that He so loved you that He laid down His life for you. He knows you intimately and He laid down His life for you. Rejoice in the fact that the Father sent His Son and you were loved before the foundation of the world according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. That He's marked you out to be His from before the foundation of the world. Rejoice in that. Rejoice. Rejoice that what awaits you for all of eternity are glories that you can only begin to imagine. Rejoice. Rejoice that this isn't the end. Rejoice that those who have gone on to be with Christ, who are in Christ, they are there now and you will join them later. Rejoice. Comfort one another with such words. Use language from 1 Thessalonians 4. The reasons to rejoice are many. Rejoice in the Lord. There's, there's wrong things you could rejoice in. Right? So I'm not telling you to pursue a cheerful heart by rejoicing in wrong things. Right? The children of Israel, you look at what um, Stephen had said in Acts 7.41. Children of Israel, they made a calf. They sacrificed to idols, and they rejoiced in the sinful work of their own hands. Don't do that. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Nor is this a call to positivity, to make yourself cheerful, that is divorced from reality. I'm not telling you to go holler at your inner winner. <laughs> Just look in the mirror and say, I am strong, I am happy, I am happy, I am cheerful, I am cheerful. 
I don't fear cheerful. I don't feel happy, but I am happy. I am cheerful. Stop lying to yourself. Pray. If you have a heavy heart, do what the psalmist did. The book of Psalms is not filled with mantras of lies, right? It's telling the Lord, honestly, I have a heavy heart. Where are you? I'm downcast and so on. But to remember that there are so many reasons to sing. You could be like Paul and Silas and you could be in a prison at midnight and you have reasons to sing. You could be approaching the end of your life here as you know it, the side of eternity, and you have so many reasons to sing. Because it's just the final ending, you might say, that leads to a new beginning where there are no more endings. The reasons to sing are so many. But then the question comes, how do we attain the cheerful heart? I know that there will be those who will despair. And they will hear the benefits and the duties um, that are presented to us in the scripture concerning a cheerful heart, and yet they feel as though they are helpless, unable to keep a cheerful heart. You ever been there? Maybe you feign yourself as the lame man that cannot be made whole. You might imagine yourself as hearing, rise up, take up your mat and smile, and you're the one who feels that he or she can resist the divine help. And I just want to say, don't believe it. It's a lie. That doesn't mean that there's not a struggle for you. It doesn't mean that there's not a struggle before you. It just means that there is hope that is greater than the struggle. Hear this. Your countenance is not a rock so heavy that God cannot lift it. Stop preaching that to yourself. He can lift other countenances. He can move other rocks. But He's not given this lame man or woman cheerfulness. He's not going to strengthen those weak bones and he's not going to lift this countenance. But there is a mystery here. And part of the mystery of sanctification is that unlike a rock that has no volitional capacity, you and I do. And so often God will beget cheerfulness into the hearts of his people through the means that he has appointed to that end. I want to go through some of those means. Because you might say when you leave here, you say, in this moment, and I would hope, for everyone who is in Christ, I would hope that you feel, even if it's a flickering, it might be more than a flickering, it might be a fan of flame, you feel cheerfulness, right? You heard the truth of Christ, you heard the truth of what awaits you, and it, and it reverberated within your heart, and you're like, yes, yes, that does make my heart cheerful. But then you think in your mind, what happens when I'm not here? I want to just call your attention to biblical truth. Um, one of the means that the Lord is going to use is going to be the Word of God. It's the primary means, accompanied by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Psalm 19, verse 8, that the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So the benefits that God's Word provides are incentives to go to God's Word. A whole bunch of benefits. Shown in Psalm 19. This is one of them. The statutes of God are right. The statutes of Yahweh are right. Rejoicing the heart. How do they rejoice the heart? Well, just to kind of stick to the context here. The statutes are right and they are just. And the heart given to the redeemed by the Spirit loves righteousness. They see the statutes of God as beautiful and lovely to behold. And they say, like the heavens that declares the glory of God, so does His statutes. So do his statutes. They reveal his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. But let me give you an example. I told you that in Philippians, right? The Apostle Paul was telling the Philippians to rejoice. Multiple times. He wrote that while he was in prison, under house arrest. 
If you go through the epistle, you actually see some examples of things he was rejoicing in that would nonetheless be instructive for them. He told them, brethren, join in following my example. And he's setting before them example after example in the epistle to the Philippians of how he was rejoicing, although he was imprisoned. Just a quick sampling of this, if you were to read through Philippians, you would see that he had joy in remembering them and joy while he was interceding for them. It brought him joy as he thought about them and prayed for them. Philippians chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 5. You could see that he rejoiced in Christ being preached. Even when Christ was preached out of wrong motives, he said, in this I nonetheless rejoice that Christ is preached. So he rejoiced in the church and his fellowship that he had with the Philippians from the first day until now, the time of that writing. He rejoiced in Christ being proclaimed. He rejoiced in Christian unity. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. He wanted them to make his joy complete by being of the same mind with one another, by being in unity. He had joy in self-sacrifice. See, one of the ironies of living in this world is that self-preservation doesn't lead where you want it to lead. Right? You see that principle that Jesus communicated, right? He who loves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for his sake and for the gospel gains it. Well, Paul communicates to the Philippians that he had joy in self-sacrifice for them. You see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. There's joy in giving yourself to others for the glory of God and for their good. There is joy in that. And one of the things that happens when you're depressed is that you feel like shrinking back. And that's another great irony. Because when you're depressed and you want to push people away, and you say, I just need some time alone. If I was the enemy, I would love for you to buy that. I would feed you more of that. You want some more? Let me give you some reasons why you need to be alone. I would tell you they don't love you, they don't care about you, nobody cares about you, nobody likes you, nobody loves you, nobody listens to you, nobody thinks about you, nobody prays for you. Even if they, like, I'll just tell you a whole bunch of things, but you, all you just need, just need a little time. You, just take a little time. Take a couple weeks. Take a few weeks. We'll deal this, with this again. You need, right? Jesus told his disciples, come aside and rest for a while. So, so scripture starts getting twisted in your mind and so on. And the irony is that you are meant to find joy in the body of Christ. One of the things you'll see in the Apostle Paul's writings over and over again is that he looked at the people of God as his joy. It wasn't blasphemous. He could say that to the Thessalonians. He could say that to the Philippians. And he looked at them and he rejoiced in the people of God. I love you. It's not just I love you because I tolerate you. I love you and I get joy from being with you and thinking about you and praying for you. This is a means. Fan it to flame. And resist those things that would seek to squelch that flame. He thought they would have joy when he sent Epaphroditus back. They loved Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a great brother. Gave himself in self-sacrifice for Paul. Almost lost his life. And he sends them back, sends Epaphroditus back, anticipating it would be for their joy. Philippians chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. He rejoiced in Christian care. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. He received help from the Philippians and he rejoiced in Christian care. You see that there. He also told them, as an aside, he told them to think on things that were lovely, noble, 
pure, praiseworthy, and so on. So we'll get to that. The battle in the mind, I know, is where this battle rages, isn't it? And when you feel like you can't swat the fly, or better stated, you keep swatting the fly, but the fly doesn't die. You're like, how many times do I have to squat, uh, swat the fly? I know. But the Word of God is meant to help you rejoice. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. So he says, God's word was found. It was like a well-prepared meal, and I ate them. They are, to use language that David uses in Psalm 19, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And when Jeremiah ate the words, they were to him a joy and rejoicing of his heart. Quick illustration, just for a kind of self-diagnostic at this moment, right? If you're struggling with joy, if you're struggling with battling depression in this kind of ongoing way, you might just want to do a diagnostic check. Imagine if you went to your doctor and you said, I just feel horrible. I feel like I'm so weak. I feel like I, can, I barely have any strength. I just don't know what's going on with me. And you kind of unpack your, your physical ailments to your doctor. Like, I feel I feel weak, I feel grumpy, I, I don't understand. And the doctor goes, okay, okay. What do you, what do, you do? I, I take so many things, but they don't seem to be helping. Okay, let's just start at the beginning here. Let's kind of lay some foundation. How much sleep do you get a night? No, I don't sleep. Okay? You, you, how much water do you drink a day? I don't drink water. I like soda. Right, you just go, not, not against, if you like soda, cool, enjoy soda, whatever, I'm not saying that, but I'm just talking about foundational things, right? So if you go to this person, like, I never leave the home, I'm so stressed at work, I don't drink any water, and I never sleep, maybe it's not as much of a mystery, maybe we get those things straightened out first, and then we could address other things. Why am I saying that in this context? I'm saying that because if you're struggling to walk in cheerfulness, and you're not ingesting the Word of God, which is meant to be a rejoicing to your heart, start there. Get in the Word of God. If you have the Spirit of God inside of you, you can get to the Word of God. My best tactic against you is to deceive you and make you think you can't. Because you can. You have the strength to get there, but if I could play with your mind and tell you you can't, you'll never do it. You've tried before. You've tried reading your daily Bible. You never do it. You never do this. You never do that. Just get to the Bible. You don't have to have a whole plan implemented in one day. You just need to get there on that day and just read the Word of God. But I don't know if I could do 30 minutes. I'm not telling you to do 30 minutes. Do three minutes. 30 seconds is better than no seconds. Just get there and let the Word of God do the work. The Word of God is meant to rejoice our hearts. The Word of God is a a means to rejoice in God. I gave you a whole bunch of examples of that before. But we want to be like the psalmist who can say in Psalm 43, verse 4, that we want to go to God, my exceeding joy. See, this is where we see it's not just about physiological benefits. It's not just about a Christian duty. It is about God's glory. When God is our exceeding joy, it makes God look so great. It makes Him look greater than circumstances. It makes Him look greater than the great things that you experience in your life. It makes Him look so great that He's better to contemplate and He can actually affect your joy despite the horrible things or the challenging things that you're going through. Oh, the glory that God gets. When you say, God is my exceeding joy. And even if you're not there, you're like, I just honestly, George, I'm finding joy in other things more than God and I hate it. Confess it. 
and tell Him, I want you to be my exceeding joy. Go to Him and trust the Spirit of God to beget those affections in you. This is similar to what I said before. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice, Christian, that your name is written in heaven. That this isn't the end. See, you may struggle sometimes wondering, like, I just don't know when I'm going to get out of this pit. And I think you'd do well to have a posture of David in Psalm 40, to wait patiently, to cry out to the Lord, and just have this humble hopefulness that He's going to pick you up out of that pit whenever you find yourself in it. But you know that pits of one kind or another all have expiration dates. And one day, the day will come where you will never experience a pit of despondency ever again. We who are in Christ, a hundred zillion years from now, will be hanging out without even an ounce of sorrow or sickness or death. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Some practical things, practical, practical things, practical advice, pastoral counseling. Guide your heart. See, again, if I'm the enemy, my best strategy, I think, this is just me thinking a little bit extemporaneously, one of my best strategies at least is to deceive you, keep tricking you, right? And I want to make you think that your heart is like a steering wheel that you can't control. Remember ever going on like bumper car rides and if you got like the bad bumper car, you're like, I can't control this. It's just kind of like turned this way and you keep trying to move it, but you can't. That's what the lie is sometimes in our minds. Like, I can't, look, my heart controls me. I don't want my heart to go in the wrong direction because it's going to lead to a whole bunch of bad things, but I can't control my heart. It's a lie. The scripture teaches you very clearly. Proverbs chapter 23, 19. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. How much more do you, as a new covenant Christian, have the capacity to guide your heart? You steer that ship. Your heart doesn't steer you. Who you are. The immaterial part of you. That, the wholeness of who you are can direct your thinking. Guard what goes in. Right? If you're watching like a lot of sinful things, if you're watching fear-inducing things, if you're watching lust-provoking things, if you're watching a whole bunch of things, don't think it's going to lead anywhere good. Right? Just to use a physio- physiological example, you're putting a whole bunch of toxins in and you expect physical health? Right? No way. You can't do that. Guard your heart. Keep your heart. Protect it. Keep it with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Right? If you're watching fear-provoking things, anxiety-provoking things, sinful things of one kind or another, it's just not going to lead anywhere good. Now, I'm not telling you to you know, keep your eyes from everything that's going on in the world or things like that. I'm just telling you what the Scripture says. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. Philippians 4, 8. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Think on noble things, lovely things. Set your mind on things above, and so on. Grow in the grace of thinking about good things. I've paraphrased this verse, but let me read it to you in its entirety. Uh, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there, are, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. What do you do when you have anxieties? What do you do when you have worries and you're not cheerful? God knows you're going to have that. 
You're not going to leave here today with a perfect track record of cheerfulness until you go home. I'm telling you, you might leave here today, and don't worry. If you get stuck in a rut, you can get out of the rut. One of the things you do is you cast your cares upon him. Your marimas, your anxieties, your worries, you cast your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5.7 And again, what's the big play here? What's the big aim? God's glory. God's glory. So what is keeping you from enjoying God? I think one other thing I'd say is just be careful. If you know that you have certain things that provoke thought patterns that lead to despondency, do your best to stay away from them. And if you, have, if you find yourself like a, like a bug attracted to like the bug zapper, and the UV light emitted from that, those bug zappers seem to attract those bugs. And you have like a thought process that attracts you to it. And like, I keep going down this thought pattern. I keep going down. I don't want to go down that path. I think one of the things I would encourage you to do is believe. Before doing anything else is believe that God will get you out of that. Just with a sense of hopefulness. I'm not telling you to give him a timetable. I'm not telling you to tell him what to do. Just a little quiet sense of hopefulness. And to know that even if he doesn't get you out as quick as you want to get out, that you can go to him and spend time with him right even in the midst of it. And what we see so often in the Psalms is that Psalms of lament turn into Psalms of praise, don't they? Last thing I'll say. This is a bit of application. Final thing. You could be a worker for other people's joy particularly in the body of Christ, but you could be that outside the body of Christ too. And how can you do that? You could do that in a bunch of ways. I'm just honing in on the power of your speech right now. Proverbs 16.24, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. So you actually have the ability, by God's grace, to speak words that will bring sweetness to a person's soul and, to go with the theme that we've been considering, actually have physiological health-producing effects in their body. Pretty amazing. Proverbs 16, 24. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Spiritual health, yes, but also, as we can see, physical health. Proverbs 16, 24. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in the heart of man weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So these are ways in which you can apply these beautiful truths that we've considered today. Let's close in a word of prayer. By the grace of God, trusting the joy of the Lord to be our strength, even as we rejoice in the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. And we do pray, Father, we pray that in light of our Christian duty and in light of the benefits associated with a cheerful heart, but most ultimately for your glory, Lord. Would you so work in us as a people that we would grow in the grace of rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing always, praying and giving thanks in all circumstances, Lord. May you work in us so that we might walk with that disposition that brings you glory and has amazing benefits for us as well. You are so kind Your kindness is strewn throughout the Scriptures. Your kindness is strewn throughout natural revelation and general revelation as well. You are amazing and you are to be gloried in and glorified for your great and abundant kindness. 
And Father, we pray that above all, you would help us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there be anybody in this place or anyone listening to my voice who hasn't come to that point where they say, I am a sinner and I've sinned against the holy God of the universe and I know I deserve his right justice, I pray, Father, that they would be like those who heard the word and received it with joy, that there is a way to be forgiven through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may you lead such a one to turn from their sin, have a change of thinking, and by your grace, look to Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And in this moment, seeing him as the Lord who died for them and rose from the grave, perhaps in this moment, Lord, you will beget in them newness of life and that joy that comes with knowing you, the living God. Hallelujah. And for your people, Lord, I close again by just asking for your help that we might glory in you and glorify you as we grow in the grace of walking in a cheerful and joyful heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.